We are for the church and for the kingdom. This vision drives everything we do. There are many noble causes and institutions in this world, and we care about the future of seminaries, academies, governments, social causes, and parachurch ministries, but they are not fundamentally why we exist. We exist for the future of the church and the advancement of God's kingdom. With God's help, our students today will be the pastors, ministers, and missionaries of the global church tomorrow. We teach the Bible in the classroom so that generations of churches will be sturdy outposts of Christ's kingdom. This is how we serve the church, and this is how we bless every other good and noble endeavor until God's glory covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. Will you join us? Powerful, powerful. Well, once again, this pulpit is fit for Dr. Allen. So I'm, I'm the one back behind the, the pulpit. <laughs> I remember coming for a uh, conference one time, and you had that, that clear acrylic pulpit kind of made for you. I said, good thing this thing is clear so everybody can see me through it here. <laughs> but uh, Anyway, I am so glad to be back on the campus. Every time I come back on this campus, I am grateful, not only for, for what this campus has done in my own soul and my, my journey, but now to be able to offer classes up in Iowa and the partnership that we're able to have. We have 50 students in Veritas School of Theology right now and uh, more coming in as we conclude this year. So it's just an amazing partnership. And I, I just rejoice at the strength that this institution has so that we can enjoy that up, up north. So thank you again for having me be here, Dr. Allen. Um, we do serve Christ in a university culture and center, and that has its challenges along the way. I wanted to start actually by, by telling just a short story of one of our students. She's actually a freshman at the University of Iowa, but somehow she has made her way into the Iowa Writers Workshop. Maybe some of you have heard of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Uh, Marilyn Robinson uh, has been part of that. Anyway, um, kind of an elite creative writing institution there as part of the university, and, and she's in a creative writing class for poetry, and she was in a class, this is just maybe a week and a half ago or so, where she was to recite an, a, an original poem, and then afterward you have to just sit, and all the rest of the students are able to critique you out loud, and you're not able to say a word as all the critiques come at you. So the poem that she wrote and recited, I, I want to do for you today, I'm just going to give a caveat. I'm not a poet. I barely know how to read poetry, so I'm going to apologize in advance to her name's Johnny, Johnny Each, uh, for my recitation of her beautiful poem. But um, it's really beautiful. She calls it Finding My Mother's Religion. It's about seeing the humility and the servanthood and the Christlikeness of her mother. So, Mrs. Allen, I think you'll especially appreciate these beautiful words. Um, let, me, let me read this for you Finding My Mother's Religion. Bent, sweeping crumbs off floorboards, bleaching stains from the sheets, pressing the children to my hip, craning toward their tears, their runny noses reached for. And so I stretch, curve, arch again and again to whims of red hands, needy mouths, my constant objects of mercy. And when they are finally still, I bend yet again at the foot of the bed on the heel of dusk, aching, begging if only I could have the strength to 
bend more, further still. If only I could be like Adonai, cross-shouldered, calloused, pricked, and open-palmed, lowly, bent down, bent, lower, cramped and crooked and closer, nearer than ever, kneeling to the ground, the sweetest reward, incarnation in the dirt, where I come face to face with Christ and his easy burden, his feathered yoke. I taste his breath, lo and behold his strength, now tis mine, the least of these, lover and washer and spilled out wine, holding me, well done, good and faithful servant, he murmurs as we press our cheeks to the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Even if I don't know how to read poetry, you've got to see the beauty behind all that and those, those beautiful words. Well, what I want to do then is let you know uh, the response of her class. So she read that, that honestly got me a, a little bit emotional as, as I read those words. Then she writes to me about the response from her class. Here's what they said. Well, they absolutely tore it apart. Oh, not the actual poetry. That was good, but the meaning. They said it described the abusive power dynamics of religion, the sadism of a God who just wants servants. They said my descriptions of my mother serving were grotesque to read because they evoked so much negative imagery. So you can imagine this, this stammering 18-year-old young girl now just having, having to receive all that, not be able to uh, reply back. After class, she made some stammering attempts, you know, at, at building a bridge for the gospel. Um, it's not going to stop her. She's going to continue to represent Christ. But we see that, right? There's this natural aversion to virtues like humility. We see that in maybe a classroom like that, but, but honestly, the thing that I want to talk to us about this morning is that that visceral response, that, that just kind of pulling back from anything that smacks of humility, submission, servanthood, we actually share that same, that same aversion, that, that pulling back, and that's what I want for us to talk about today. We, we live in a world, the air that we breathe culturally has actually um, taken pride And no longer do we see pride as an accusation. That's the virtue. Humility, submission, those are vices now, right? So the air that we breathe uh, is constantly letting us know, seek for pride, you know, stay away from humility. And so we're breathing that air all the time. I wonder how much is still in us and that we continue to, to draw in. So the question is not, man, how, how do, um, virtues like humility and and submission land out there somewhere, the question I want us to be asking ourselves is, what what does it happen as we look in the mirror? How do we receive those kind of virtues? So what I'm going to do, we're going to end up in the book of James, but before we get to the book of James, if you've got your Bible, I would love for you to go to the book of Luke and chapter 18, because um, if you've studied the book of James, it's it's not hard to, to see where 
uh, there's almost a direct line that you can take from James' teachings to teachings of Jesus Christ. It, it's amazing how many just direct hits, direct lines there are. I actually really believe that what we're going to look at in James is actually him teaching on the parable that I'm about to read, starting in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. Now, I can't prove that, but I, the, the parallels are so amazing that I, I have to wonder if James is actually kind of standing on the shoulders of Jesus' teaching of this this familiar parable, as then we'll look to hear him teach us when we get to the book of James. So Luke 18, starting verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Now, not every parable has a little preamble to, to alert us to what we're supposed to be looking for. But here, thankfully, we have that, right? This parable is very specific to those who thought themselves in a vaunted way righteous and looked down on others. That's really an important aspect. So here is the parable that Jesus taught. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Well, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. You almost wonder if there could be an ellipsis there. Like, did he keep going? And Jesus is like, yeah, enough. You get the the picture, right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, that last phrase is really important and is absolutely the bridge to what we're going to look at in James. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Before we leave this this parable and get to the book of James, Just a couple of observations. I think it's really intriguing, as I was meditating on this passage, I think it's really intriguing that Jesus sets this parable in the context of worship and prayer, a gathering place for those who are seeking the Lord. Once again, that should be a clue to us that he's not having us talk about people out there, those pagans somewhere out there. He's talking about religious folk people who have gathered in order to worship, right? Because we can spot pride out there, whether that's the the class, the poetry class, or, you know, the athlete, the chest thumping, you know, chief (laughs) or whatever, somebody out there, no, it's probably a Hawkeye, you know, thumping the chest. We can can see, you know, the big brash kind of, or maybe the the frat rat, you know, that comes back from spring break to tell all his exploits or whatever. We see that stuff out there somewhere, right? If you remember James chapter one, He doesn't necessarily want to focus on those bad guys out there. He wants us looking in a mirror, right? These words are for Christians. These words are for people who are gathering in chapels to worship, gathering in local churches to worship and and hear the word. This is actually to hold up a mirror to us. And we don't want to just slip away because we think, oh, James is talking about those big bad guys out there here that Jesus is talking about those people out there. Another thing to really point out, I think, that that Jesus does, the core of the Pharisees' pride is in comparison. I really want you to take note of that. The core of, of the pride that is swelling in this Pharisee's heart 
is, is exhibited in comparison. Now, I don't know how long it's been since you've read uh, Mere Christianity, Lewis's Mere Christianity. It had been a long time since I had to. It's one of those books that every Christian feels like they should have on the shelf, you know, whether or not you've ever read it or read it very often or not. I want to encourage you to go back, pull that dusty tome off, off the shelf and read chapter eight. It's called The Great Sin. I reread it as I was thinking through this passage. And he, he makes this beautiful teaching in that chapter on this idea that, that comparison is at the core of pride, which is at the core of all other sins. Anyway, I, I would really commend you to do that. But, but just know, and then we'll, we'll move on. But the core of the Pharisees' pride was comparison. And the last thing I'm going to point out is how Jesus focuses so much on the misery of the tax collector. Really vivid language. You see him back in the shadows, won't even lift his gaze, thumping his chest, even saying, God, have mercy on me. And I'm not sure why translators tend to leave this up, but there's an article there, the sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. In other words, it doesn't matter who else is a sinner. I don't care who else is in the room right now. It doesn't matter. I'm the sinner. Have mercy on me. I, I feel like it's against you and you only that I've sinned, God. I am the sinner. And, and the, the tears and, and the, um, the way that this, this man postures himself with misery is, I think, to be maybe most notable of the whole thing. So now, um, go with me to the book of James, okay? So I'm going to make my case that James chapter 4 is actually James teaching more elaborately now uh, from that parable. So go with me to James chapter 4, and I'm I'm going to start reading in verse 6. James chapter 4 and verse 6. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, he starts with that that beautiful phrase in verse 6. He gives greater grace, mega grace, outpouring grace, lavish grace. Now, the reason for that is because he has just called the reader adulterers, right? Just just above that, he's been talking about spiritual adultery. That's because what he's saying is, now, you Christians, I'm writing to you, brothers and sisters, commonly a a phrase from the book of James— He's saying, you're saying that you have a covenant commitment to Jesus, but the way that you sidle up with the world, the way you keep making friends with the world, that's like a spiritual uh, adultery that's going on. So he's just said that, but now he turns and, and in a really inviting way, he says, oh, that's true, but God has greater grace, right? That, uh, that idea that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So he wants to, this is actually maybe on first blush as you, as you just read through that, it might seem like a little bit of a James beating that we're going to get in this text. It's actually an invitation. He wants to open the door to greater grace for all of us, right? So here is how I believe that James is channeling the parable of Jesus, Because the first thing that I want to point out, point number one, is this, that James is talking to you. I know I've said it already, but I'm going to repeat it till you believe me. (laughs) He's talking to you. He's not talking about you versus those unbelievers out there that spurn God. We we already know that 
those guys out there are in trouble, okay? That's, right now, he's holding the mirror up, and it's not even the person down the, down the aisle from you or whatever. He's talking to you. He wants to offer you greater grace. And the reason that we need to think that through is because the language then that he uses is he says, God opposes you when you are filled with pride, when you lack humility. Now think about that. We don't often think about God opposing Christians, right? I, I like to think of it often when I, when I think about the way that God might oppose a Christian is, you know, how a father with a young child, I was just with some of my grandchildren last night, and, you know, if they're going a certain way, you could just pretty easily put your head on their little forehead and, you know, there's stop, you know, no, I'm stopping you right here. You're not going any further, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you can find that your greatest opposition is not the devil out there somewhere. God himself will oppose you if you allow pride to, to control you, if that becomes your, your virtue. But, but he's going to offer mega grace. He wants us to to get away from that. So the second thing that I want to point out that I think comes right from that parable also is that comparing yourself to others will blind you to your own pride. Comparing yourselves to others, that's going to blind you to your own pride. Remember again, the core, we're told boldly, of the Pharisees pride was that he was constantly comparing himself, even like that guy back there, right? It's constant. That comparison is what caused his pride. Well, where do I get that here? Well, because James right away brings up the devil. Look at, look at what he says there again. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the devil, uh, translated here, the devil, Diabolos, uh, we often use that word devil there, but what, what is just the meaning of Diabolos. What is the meaning of his name? It is a slanderer. It is an accuser, right? The thing about the devil is that he actually has uh, actually no self-reflection at all. There's not a moment where he stops to look in the mirror and recognize his own faults. His whole being at the center of his being, that's the reason that becomes his name, his whole being is about accusing and, and you know, spotting others and, and showing that, right, I, I just started going through uh, the book of Job in my Bible reading thing, right? The whole preface, the whole beginning of the book of Job is, you know, oh, I know Job seems like, yeah, okay, maybe he is the most righteous man on earth. Uh, yeah, but, 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 right? This constant pointing the finger, constant accusing, that's, that's what he does, always looking for the weaknesses of others. So I, I had a really interesting conversation uh, just this past week with um, a young woman, and she was telling me, she said, um, you know, I grew up in a home where my mom seemed always to be in the right, seemed to always be this suffering servant, and would constantly throw her husband, this gal's father, under the bus all the time. In fact, even calling him the devil incarnate. And so constantly was trying to say, man, I'm the only one holding this marriage together. I'm the one holding this family together. You know, if it weren't for your father, man, that devil incarnate, that kind of thing. She said, you know, but as I've grown older and now as an adult myself, and now she's newly married, she said, I'm looking over at my mom and I'm realizing, wow, my mom was way more culpable in all the trouble in our family than she ever gave credit to. In fact, I'm just realizing she might actually be in a worse place than my dad, but it was taking her all these years and now into adulthood to actually see, 
But I want you to think about that, that story. I mean, it's just a grief, right, to hear about that. Even the fact that she would call her husband the devil incarnate with her finger of accusation pointing his way, right? Who's the devil incarnate in that scenario, right? The, the one that's constantly looking out. And honestly, it's her constant accusation, constant slander, constant devilish, right? Channeling the devil in those moments that was keeping her from ever looking in a mirror, ever seeing what her own faults were, ever acknowledging her own culpability. And I was even thinking about, you know, here I am preaching these kind of things in, uh, you know, Iowa City with, you know, in the shadow of this great university. And, you know, we, we sometimes don't want to talk about the devil. Like, aren't we beyond that? Aren't we so enlightened? Don't, don't talk about... We're talking about the devil and all that kind of stuff, right? We, we almost mock it. Like, I grew up in a, in a town where our mascot was the Green Devils, the Osage Green Devils, right? Because he was this whole cartoonish, kind of impish character. So that's what we want to do. We want to make that myth. We want to make that cartoon. James boldly just introduces us to the devil because he exists, because he's there. And, you know, the very first time we ever encounter the devil in the book of Genesis What does he do? He entices Adam and Eve to sin, and then God shows up. Adam, Eve, what did you do? What is their immediate response? No, she did it. She did it, right? And then she says, no, 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 he made me do it. He made it. They start channeling the devil, right? The devil is right there getting all of us to do what he does, and that is refuse to look in the mirror and only point outward. There's got to be somebody in the room worse than I am. As I take all these things and the balance of things, I know I'm better than, and there's got to be somebody out there, right? And so we're constantly slandering, constantly accusing, refusing to look at our face in the mirror. But here's where I really want to land as as we... uh, as we wrap up this short little text in James. Don't hold back on grief over sin because God will actually meet you there. That's what James, again, this is an invitation. This isn't a beatdown. The invitation, I want to reread for you, starting in verse 8, look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, James is anything but abstract, right? He's anything but abstract, very concrete in his language. So he's like, oh, I don't want that to remain unclear for you. When I say draw near to God, here's what I mean, okay? So here's what he says. Here's what I mean to draw near to God. And as you do this, he will draw near to you. That's the promise. Look what he says. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let that laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So if you were with Dr. Chipman in a Greek class, you know, uh, you would find that there's some real hidden meanings here under miserable, mourn, and weep. You know what those words actually mean? Yeah, they mean be miserable. (laughs) Start mourning. Start weeping. That's what they mean. Those are great words in English to translate what those words mean. It's not obscure. There's nothing vague. There's nothing opaque about this. We should be miserable about the sins that we have in our lives. You know, I I wasn't thinking about when, when it worked out for me to come this day. It doesn't just coincide with a big parade. This is actually Ash Wednesday, and I hadn't thought about that. You know, most of us are not in a more liturgical background. This would be the day, the first day that that Christians around the world and through the eons have have, uh, 
set aside time to prepare to celebrate Easter by really mourning and grieving over their sin. Today is that the first day of that, Ash Wednesday? Often, Christian, when somebody comes to us and begins to tell us that they have been sinning, I fear that we too often raise to, oh, no, 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 don't, don't be too hard on yourself. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we want to quickly get them out from under the weight that they are feeling about their sin. I think James wants to short circuit that impulse. I think he wants to say, yeah, actually, you should mourn more about your sin. Actually, I think that you should stop laughing for a minute and really consider how grievous your sin is. I think that's what he's saying. You know, in, in Revelation, when uh, the church in Ephesus is, is written to, they got so many good things going for them. Remember what he says there so interestingly? Uh, Repent and go back and do the things you did at first. Remember when he says that to the Ephesian church? I was thinking about that in relationship to this. Because when I first became a Christian at the University of, of Northern Iowa, um, I remember, so I didn't, I didn't know my Bible at all. I'd been raised in this kind of church background. Uh, very liberal. I didn't, I didn't know the Bible at all. And so in my early days as a Christian, as I'm reading through this Bible and being discipled and different layers of what were actually sins that I had no idea were sins at all, I remember, here I am in this dorm room. I've got my Coors poster next to my Jesus poster. Like I was a hot mess in all sorts of ways. But every time I would come to some new realization of my sin, you know, I, I would find myself weeping and, and crying. I remember the first Easter as a Christian And I got to Easter, I'm like, that's what this is all about. My sin compelled Jesus Christ to give his life for my sin. And and I would just weep and celebrate all the more. Here's what I'm saying. I wonder if I've gotten away from that posture too much. I think James is trying to alert you and me, not those guys out there. Of course, those guys out there should also weep over their sins. He's asking you, when was the last time that tears came to your eyes because you boldly, with your eyes wide open, now you're a Christian, you have read your Bible, you're even here studying the Bible, right? And how many of you have walked boldly into sin knowing exactly what you were doing? And then when the light is turned on, when the Holy Spirit brings that level of conviction, hot tears come down your face and you once again come back to say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. It's like spiritual adultery been making friends with the world. I'm not a friend of the world. You're the greatest friend. So I I was thinking about that in relationship to a a very familiar psalm. I'll just read it for you. You're you're welcome to turn. I'm going to be in Psalm 30. Um, This is such a beautiful psalm. Listen listen to just uh, a couple of verses out of it. I I won't take the time to read it all. Just, Just verses four and five. Psalm 34 and 5 says this, Sing to the Lord, you faithful ones. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor, a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Now, often I would read those verses, and I'm all about the joy in the morning and just anger, just a little bit of anger. Oh, but then he's back. We're good, you know. And then all of a sudden I started thinking, weeping may stay overnight. And I don't know if you're one to write in your Bible. I would go ahead and underline that, put a little exclamation point by that. When was the last time we have wept all through the night 
because of the sin that God has shown us in the mirror, right? Now, I love the fact that joy does come in the morning. I love the fact that he does meet us there. But I'm really convicted that I've often fled to Romans 8.1 real quickly and haven't thought enough about the grief, the misery that should be mine because I sin against the Lord. I love the very last, you know, I said this is an invitation, not a beatdown. I really mean that. He gives greater grace in verse 6. And then the way that he ends that, this little passage, verse 10, James 3, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We should be a little stunned that he uses the word exalt. See, we usually reserve that word, and the Bible usually reserves that word for what we do toward God, right? We exalt the Lord, and we have songs about, let's exalt the Lord. Do you know that what James is saying, this is how beautiful his invitation is. He is saying, you do your job of humbling yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up, right? I I, I love even the imagery that he gives us in another famous parable of of the prodigal son, where, where the prodigal son, head down, you know, kind of slowly marching his way back to the father. But when the father spots him, what does he do? Runs toward him and lifts him up, spins him around, right? That's the picture that James has for us. You humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. This is a beautiful invitation to really enjoy the sweetness of pure forgiveness, pure joy in the morning. Let him lift you up. So what I want to do in, in the few minutes that I have left is I actually want us to put this into practice. I don't want this just to be a sermon and then we head back to class. Um, I want to put this into practice. So will you do this? Will you stand with me right now? And what I want to do is uh, uh, another part of our Bible, another beautiful psalm that actually leads us down this path is, is Psalm 51. So if you'll go with me and do an attitude of prayer, I just want God's word to lead us to apply James chapter 4. Take a deep breath right now. Will you put yourself in the presence of the Lord as you hear these words? Oh, be gracious to me, God according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Because, Lord, that's what it is when I sin. It's rebellion. And I'm so sorry for that. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Jesus, the reason I feel guilty is because I am. It's sin. I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is is always before me. It's against you. You alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Oh, God, create a clean heart for me. Oh, God, do what only you can do. I I stand here feeling the weight of guilt, but you stand there ready to pour greater grace. Clean my heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Oh, Jesus, restore the joy of your salvation to me. That's what you do. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Breathe life into me where I see darkness. Jesus, I know that you do not call us to walk under just a, a constant shadow of guilt. I know that you call us to embrace deliverance from sin. That's what we have in you, Jesus. We celebrate that. But would you awaken in us, Holy Spirit, would you awaken in us an appropriate misery over our sin? I I don't know the stories of all who are gathered in this room this morning. You do. And I pray that we wouldn't somehow satisfy our conscience by looking around and finding that we're somehow better than somebody else. Feeling good because there's others around that are in worse shape than we are. Lord, help us by your spirit, by the power of your word to weep. And then find that as we humble ourselves before you, you lift us up. And the friendship that we have with you, when we look, look up and are able to cry, Abba, Father, it will be so sweet and so joy-filled. So give us the courage to say yes to this invitation. Fill us with joy that is a deeper kind of joy than maybe we've been experiencing later because you led us through the weeping to that joy. Jesus, thank you for every man and woman here. The unique way you're able by your spirit to do work in us, please do that, Lord. Don't let any of us squirm out from under it or escape it, but lead us closer to you. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.